0: Thank you for joining us for the PEPCAC Podcast, a weekly information security show featuring some all-around good people. It is week 47 of 2021, and the bug bites from Costa Rica are starting to go away. I'm also finally adjusted to the reversal of daylight savings time. I'm Chris Louie, and with me, I have my co-host Brian Deach, who doesn't know what daylight savings time is because his state doesn't observe it. That's true, man. We live in
1: the wild, wild west. We don't conform to that uh, daylight saving time for sure uh you know with that said i do support the pacific northwest so looks like all my meetings are being about an hour earlier than normal which kind of interrupts my gym time uh but on a side note in the previous podcast i told you guys i wanted to talk about like what motivates you what's an nft uh and my thoughts in the metaverse but i didn't get on the agenda so maybe next week
0: Sounds good. We'll be be, be sure to get those topics on for, for next week. So we'll give you a little preview of what's going to be on next week's show. And we also have Glenn Medina, who looked extremely fit in his beach attire. Hey,
2: everyone. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. Happy to be back for podcast number 34. It was a hard four months and trying to catch up to the physique of my two cohorts here was very difficult. I don't know if I succeeded, but for once, I wasn't the worst shape on the beach. Nothing will beat the uh, the shirtless
0: man hugs from Chris, though. Thank you for that. <laughs> you, you know you missed that during COVID times. Had to make up for lost time.
2: Was that hip in or hip out? <laughs> so
0: the world will never out. know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, week forty-seven means that there are only five more weeks in twenty twenty-one. Yes, it's hard to believe that. The year is almost over. This was supposed to be the year that was supposed to hit the reset button on 2020, so I'm sure we'll do a recap episode closer to the end of the year. No guests this week, just us hosts. As the holidays approach, it's going to be challenging to sync up our schedules, so we'll probably get some hosts back on starting early next year. Combined, we have decades of information security experience and are here not just to educate, but to entertain. We've got four awesome stories for you this week. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. For opening topic, now Glenn, you did not get to talk about your experience in Costa Rica on last week's episode. So why don't you give us some thoughts on your time there?
2: Well, guys, I'm not going to lie to you. I had a great time. I think and hope that my wife did as well. It was great catching up with, uh, people that I haven't seen in a while or I've never seen before. Like, uh, Brian, I think that was the first time I had, to, had met you and looked up to you and, and literally I had looked up to you because you're, your six plus foot nature, right? Tallness there. Um, as, as I am only five, four, so definitely looking at your boobs is not something, you know, directly <laughs> on is not something that I'm used to. um but yeah no it was great uh the accommodations were awesome the food was just enjoyable for once it was a trip that um i totally agreed with right um the people were awesome i I could not express how how nice the costa rican people are the fact that they speak very good english and were very accepting of the fact that my um, the Spanish was not as great, uh, as their English was, was nice. And like, I, like I said, anything else, it was, uh, it was good to just get away from the United States and see that, that there are uh, other places that are still alive and kicking. How about you guys? I, I guess I must've missed, uh, a little bit there, but I guess you guys had a really good time. Well, well. the,
0: the important things to know in, in Spanish, uh, first of all, dos cervezas, por favor. You gotta know that one. And then the second one, donde está el baño? I think those are the probably the, the most
2: important phrases when, when you're down there, and specifically in Costa Rica. I mean, yeah, in Costa Rica, you you put four fingers up to your head, and if you guys can't see me, it's the the thumb is bent, and you put four fingers, and that means their drink of choice there, which is the local drink called casique, um, and that is a a a an awesome um, beverage of choice down there because, depending on what you mix it with, it may taste like. Uh, tequila it may taste like vodka and it may taste like rum depending on what's what it is mixed with great drink by the way i think brian you had a couple
1: Uh, i may have And one thing's for sure it didn't taste like gasoline so it
0: was still pretty darn good yeah i definitely enjoyed my time there we covered uh, a little bit of it it last week but yeah the people there the country beautiful it'd be some place I'd like to return to and someplace I would recommend people visit if they haven't had the
2: chance yet. Yeah. Good times and great company. I I just can't say anything more. That was actually a pretty fun trip. Alright, well, on to our first
0: topic. We've heard of ransomware crews diversifying their tactics in order to maximize the payout, either by applying extra pressure or causing harm in multiple ways and extorting a ransom for each each one of the ways so what we're seeing now we're wading into what's called quadruple extortion now and let me explain first there was regular just plain old ransomware you pay a fee and you decrypt your files your files got encrypted you buy a key they decrypt your files next after backups got better came double extortion, where the attackers encrypted your data, so even if you were stored from backup or your security controls were good enough to stop the ransomware attack, well, the attackers steal the files and they threaten to release them unless a ransom is paid. So they encrypt it, and there's also the data leakage threat for that one. The third evolution of ransomware was adding the fun of a DDoS attack where the attackers would send just so much junk traffic to the already affected organizations and make the recovery that much harder. Now add in a fourth pillar to the ransomware attack and that is to sell access to the corporate networks of the victims because oftentimes these ransomware attacks start with some type of phishing attack or some type of vulnerability in a network appliance or a VPN device and that's how the attackers get into the, the corporate networks. And if the corporation does, doesn't does pay, they refuse to pay, they try to recover from backup or just they don't want to pay, they will then sell that access to someone else. And whoever they sell it to, they could try to ransomware them again. They could try to steal their data. They can try to destroy the network. So now there's four things that companies have to worry about from these ransomware crews instead of just one. So quadruple extortion is a little extreme, Chris.
1: I think what they mean to say is you can bundle and save here, right? Like this one payment, just kind of cover all four pillars. It's interesting though, like the whole like selling access to the corporate network, because at first you think, well, are they just reselling credentials? But I think if you're really doing your job as the bad guy, you're in there, you're going to lock everyone out of the network, right? And create, you know, custom Active Directory groups and, and users And sell that off to give people the ability to start to you know get in and
0: wreak havoc it's either that or they create web shells or they create their own vpns inside the company Uh, the the conti ransomware gang is actually the one that that started this concept of of quadruple extortion and we'll have to see if the other ransomware gangs follow suit or not
2: what's the other option if you're the a guy in defense is to just unplug all your firewalls or your network and just go, nah, we're just going to shut down. I don't think that's an option, but man, that's pretty bad. Did you guys
1: know that the, uh, the urban dictionary, uh, definition for Conti is a really sexy chick at my school. I wonder if that's, uh, has anything to do with this this group.
0: (laughs) In college, I had a professor Conti. He taught intro to calculus. So that's what I think of anytime I hear about the Conti ransomware group. So it's either a college professor or an attractive uh, female at, at somebody's school. My, uh, my
1: first college algebra, like in college, the guy came up and he was like, he was hilarious, like little short, uh, you know, balding white guy with this big old thick mustache. And he would like kind of twirl it at us. And his name was Dr. Payne. and he wrote up on the board. He's like, and he's I promise this will be a painful class. I dropped it. He <laughs> well. couldn't take the
0: puns. <laughs> oh man. No, he was,
1: he was ruthless, man. He's just like, you know, college algebra is here to weed up the, the week and uh, yeah. See you later.
2: But isn't that crazy though, that in college or even in education stuff, their job is to educate you. Why is pain associated with that education or why does it have to be? Right. That's no, just how I mean, some
0: professors were. Like I, I had an electrical engineering professor, and he, his goal, and it made nothing made him happier than when he did the curve on the 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 midterms and the finals, and the average score of the class was like a forty four percent. Like that was his goal was to to make the curve like forty four percent be the middle of the
2: curve. I look at that as a failure on his part because that means if the highest grade in your class was forty four percent. He didn't do a great job teaching anybody anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree with you. He was the only one that taught that particular double E class, so I don't think they could get rid of him. And everyone in double E had to take it. Uh, the other side of that, that the flip side of that, was one of my uh, political science teachers actually. And when he did tests, and if he said. I forgot what the, the the breakdown was, but if he said something like if sixty percent of the students missed a question, the question was defective, and he just threw it out.
2: Wow, equal rights. Yeah. Hey, so go. So going back to this, right? It, it's it's how many people are being affected by this? And at that at that point, if you're being quadruple here on the extortion. They really own you at that point, right? So, what what recourse[s] and what actions have we seen come out of this from other from from organizations as far as their ability to get out of this this self made jail per se?
1: That's a good question. I'm like, at what point you're just like, "Hey, it's gonna head over here to the data centers, unplug everything because it is bad, right? We gotta start from scratch." Yeah.
2: <laughs> hey, Brian, I'm looking for a new job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a former sis admin now looking just to get away from all this, right? Yeah. Your name is Bob and you want the ding fair to get away. So yeah.
0: Uber Eats baby. That's your new job. It's when you dust off the old DR plan and say, Well, let's start anew. Just pretend the data center fell into the ocean and let's let's start brand new. So there's there's that you can pay. That's the whole goal of this. You can pay to make this go away. Um, otherwise, you're you're essentially fighting a battle on four fronts because there's four things that you have to fight. And some organizations have what it takes. They have really great instant response teams. Some organizations don't get in the situation to begin with. And then there will be inevitably some organizations that just never bounce back from it.
1: Do you think that CISO this will this ever that... get a job again?
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. They always do. <laughs> so and the, and the the other question is: This like four times the amount of the ransom, or is this some 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 number that's exponential now? Because you've been you've been owned several times over.
0: Well, I think it's like Brian. It's, it's a bundle deal. If you want all four of these to stop, here's the price. If you want two of these to stop, well, we'll charge mm-hmm. you you know seventy five percent as much, and you gotta you gotta negotiate with them.
1: So out, out of the of four, service.
0: which which is the worst one to you guys? I think it's the stolen data. Like, if you hit the right target and you steal the right amount of data, it doesn't matter if it's encrypted and if it's gone. Like, there, there have been successful campaigns where the company effectively stopped the ransomware attack. They saw it happening. Their security worked to a T. They still made off of the data. They still had to pay to prevent the exposure of PII or confidential information, uh, intellectual property. Uh, like DDoS, we talked about it on, on the last, last podcast. If it's a web-based DDoS, we figure that out. Like you put it behind an Akamai or a Cloudflare and you're, you're done with that part. The selling access to it, it, you know, if you have the right incident response plan, you can, you can find out where all the web shells are. You can find out how they got in, reset everyone's password. That's, that's doable. I think the one least out of your control is the data leakage.
2: Yeah. That's probably where all the money's at too, right? Is the actual data itself.
1: Yep. Yeah, unless it's something like the CIA, right? Like that, the data is bad, but if you had access into everything, then all of a sudden you
0: get access to their tool sets as well, right? Yeah, and then that's when we get like the the Vault 7 leaks, the Shadow Brokers leaks, and we get to see all their their hacking tools, which is very cool from the security side. Get a job at the CIA. They won't hire me, I'm too good looking. Get get hired by a contractor of the CIA, like like a Booze Allen Hamilton. I don't know. I
1: think I'd just be like, "Oh man, I gotta tell my friends." they And like, "We're gonna fire you."
0: <laughs> and on the note of the U.S. federal government, our next story is the this this is goes back to May of this year May 2021 there's an executive order at the White House to strengthen the nation's cybersecurity defenses and a direct result of the solar winds attack that was disclosed at the end of last year earlier this year and part of the executive order was that all civilian federal agencies they needed to implement encryption which is good we don't want data just sitting around in clear and they also had to implement multi-factor authentication Well, the deadline was this past Monday, and surprise, surprise, many federal agencies did not make the deadline to implement encryption or multi-factor authentication. There is a blame game going on of this is just too hard, or we don't know how to do it, but in the end, it didn't happen. Uh, The agencies will be granted an extension as long as they provide some type of blueprint on how they plan to get there, but really... Multi-factor authentication is the one of the most effective ways to prevent account takeover. So things like credential stuffing attacks, stolen credentials, phishing attacks. It's not impossible to fish someone with MFA. We've talked about evil jinx and how uh, you can still do it around it, but but it just raises the bar that much higher and makes it that much harder to get into a system when things like encryption and multi-factor authentication are in use. Well, it,
2: it probably part of the answer problem is how do you and in- make sure that encryption is turned on on a windows 95 machine that's still in government use somewhere right because they have an exception because the application that's sitting on there is just too darn old still 8 bit
0: just kick it Holy off yes. the network <laughs> It does. Like, I, I worked with hospitals that have MRI machines hooked up to Windows 98 boxes, and I'm like, that's fine. Just just kick it off the network, have it air-gapped, completely air-gapped, and it, it's got one job, is to, to perform these, these MRIs.
2: But it needs an update. How's it going to get its update if it's not connected to the network?
1: <laughs> Guess what? It's Windows 95. It doesn't have an update. Like, <laughs> shut up, guys. Uh, I look at both of these requirements... Uh, you know, encryption, is that like data in flight or like encryption at rest? What is, what's the mandate there? I don't even know. Yeah.
0: I believe it's for, for data at rest. It, it's to prevent things from happening. Like, you know, the OPM hack, the office of personal management, or even like T-Mobile or, or Twitch. We talked about those breaches. Like there's that's just all this though. data sitting out there. That's, yeah. that's not, yeah, good. That's, well, it's
2: like disencryption, encryption, right? That's all, that's all we're talking about here.
0: Yeah. Like that, well, you say that <laughs> just like when, when, our company turned on multi-factor authentication and it it seemed pretty easy. Like I just fired up my Google Authenticator, got my code set up. Like I think in, in my mind, in practice, it seems trivial. But I guess for the federal government across all these civilian agencies accessing dozens of disparate systems, it may not be as straightforward. You know, even if it was encryption on the fly, like that doesn't
1: seem like it should be rocket science. And then the, the whole MFA thing, like the fact that that wasn't even already... Like something that's being done at the federal government level that blows my mind. But you're right, Chris. Like that isn't necessarily all that difficult to set up. I'm trying to think if I've ever had an issue, like whether it's Google Authenticator or uh, if you're are you still using? Well, you don't have to answer this, but if you're using Google Authenticator for for work, you should probably go to Ac- uh, Octa Verify because uh, it can just you know prompt you and you just touch it and say yes, this is me instead of typing your code. But Uh, makes life a little bit easier. But MFA, like that should have been done a long time ago as well.
2: Yeah, but they're 20, 30, 40 years behind, right, of what the real world is doing, right? So old systems, no funding, no budget, um, experience. And we're not not really, I I don't think this is the main, this is probably smaller municipalities here that don't have that level of experience. That's what I'm thinking. Or smaller agencies.
1: Good time to be a government contractor, right? Yeah. But, you know, I think... You would think. The little that I do know, I have to think that they're probably very change adverse, right? Like, they think they're kind of stuck in their ways. And to get something like that turned on might require approval after approval after approval after approval. And then there's the whole, like, we get it, right? Like, type in your Google Authenticator. But there's people probably like my mom's age that are still working for the government. Can you imagine trying to explain to them like how you factor in OTP or something like that? Like I can see how that would be a huge
0: learning curve for some people. Like for example, a logistics officer for the state department. <laughs> yes. We, we should probably ask some people that work in the public sector and see what their experience is with things like the implementing multi-factor authentication for federal governments uh, I actually have somebody in mind I can ask he worked at a, a federal systems integrator and he's pretty well versed on how, how this works I should get his opinion on it because yeah, it seems like I, <clears throat> at least in the the private sector to turn something like this on is is fairly straightforward but I'm guessing in the public sector there's a lot more a lot more certification a lot more approvals a lot more you know bureaucracy that they have to they have to get through you imagine if you sold
1: MFA when this came out? You're like, it is a good time to be alive.
0: Speaking of civilian federal agencies, the U.S. Commerce Department for our next topic, they have blacklisted the controversial spyware company NSO Group that will be ringing celebrations in uh, organizations that celebrate freedom of the press and organizations like Amnesty International, um, Citizen Lab, you know, up in in Toronto, I bet they're celebrating right now that the U.S. has effectively banned NSO Group. And uh, there are three other surveillance type spyware type companies that are now prohibited from doing business in the U.S. And they banned it on national security grounds, similar to Huawei, when Huawei was bidding on, I think, some 5G contracts here in the U.S., they were prohibited from bidding on that because of uh, national security uh, concerns about China putting implants in these these devices. The U.S. Commerce Department, they did a review and determined that, yes, the, the NSO group, even though they advertise, let's say, we only sell to uh, law enforcement, we only sell to governments, this is only used to stop terrorism. But there have just been so many documented examples of this software being used against journalists and political dissidents. And even possibly like Jeff Bezos, like we think his phone might've gotten hacked by, by Pegasus. And finally, the U S government said enough is enough. We're, we're, we're not going to allow you to operate here in the U S and. You know, we've, we've talked about them before. I think, you know, how, at least I feel about NSO group. And I am not against surveillance, like lawful surveillance. I am against these surveillance technologies being misused and spying on people that have, they have no business spying on. And that's the gray
1: area, right? Like what is lawful, right? Kind of that gray area. Oh, uh, this just in looks like NSO group is accepting Bitcoin. So (laughs) I don't know. I don't know, boys. (laughs) I remember going to like RSA a couple of years ago and Highway was there. They were like selling like DDoS appliances and whatnot and then and mobile phones. Like it was the weirdest like uh, like thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm like, do you guys have, a, you know, like a can opener to you? Like what else you got in this? Booth?
0: <laughs> yeah, Wally in itself is not. Uh, they make gear, they make networking gear, they're a telecommunications company. Um, I think having them embedded in critical infrastructure like our telecommunication system here in the US, probably not the best idea. Um, it, it It's similar to that. Would we ask China to put a Arista switch in their network? Do they
2: trust us? I mean, we're, of this course. Is, we're good people. Yeah, this, this is 101, right, guys? <laughs> so... <laughs> This is uh, if I remember right back then there was a, a firewall company that got banned from the US government as well for leading a backdoor um to their firewall controls and and that was found out and they were quickly booted out and replaced by a, a US manufacturer of firewalls so
1: Do you guys remember the uh the Juniper um backdoor into the VPN that was there? And uh, like, yes, yeah. And uh, for the listeners that don't know, it was literally like they have like all the source code for uh, the Juniper OS, right? And then at a certain point in time, when you're scrolling down, it's just like a block of commented out stuff. Like, we have no idea what this does below this line. Do not touch, right? And so finally, one day, someone looked at it and said, "I want to touch." And they figured out it was like it was like this straight up program backdoor right into the into the VPN. At least that's the way I perceive it to be.
0: Yeah, and I, there, there were some conspiracy theories around that. Did the NSA pay Juniper to put this code in? Uh, I tend to lean on no. I don't think Juniper would risk their international business uh, to you know, help, out, help out the NSA. You know, crazier things have happened, like the whole RSA B-safe crypto library. Did, did they intentionally weaken it so the NSA could crack it? I think there's a little bit more evidence to support that. I think... An intelligence agency broke into Juniper, modified the source code, because even like through internal code reviews, this thing didn't get caught uh, for a while until somebody like, like you said, Brian, someone took a closer look and said, you know what? This says don't mess with it. I'm going to mess with it. What does it do? Like, uh oh, (laughs) we have a back door. It's nightmares.
1: Don't open it. (laughs) Well, how did it even get discovered? Did Juniper put it out like, hey, look, this is what happened? Or did someone exploit the vulnerability and they started to dig into
0: it? As far as I know, it, it came up in an internal code review, and then Juniper disclosed it. And th- they basically said, yeah, we don't know how this got in here. We're going to remove it. Not good for them. They did the right thing.
1: I wonder if they t- their stock took a hit that day.
2: Just a little one.
0: So whether or not you think it would really affect sales, are people not going to buy Juniper gear because there's potential NSA backdoor? Yeah, maybe, but I think in the grand scheme of things that they, they bounce back just fine. But it's good to see the U.S. Commerce Department finally cracking down on, on these things. And I think it's good I because now we have some, tech, some kind of leverage and we can go to NSO and say we have these documented cases of your technology being unlawfully used. Can you explain it? Can you... Implement better export controls, better know your customer protocols, and just use that as leverage. let say if you want to operate here in the U.S., you are going to follow these rules. I'm going to look at the career portal on the NSO group, see if I have what it takes to
1: work there.
2: <laughs> There's an age limit now, right? <laughs> hey, wait a second. <laughs> we have a quote on sure here from Dr. Christmas Seuss. Happened. Yeah. That's what Chris was trying to deal with was, is he still young enough to make it in there? (laughs) (laughs) All right, on
0: to our last topic, and it will be a rotating topic every week. And this week's topic, we actually started talking about it when we were all together in Costa Rica, and you guys said, nope, let's save it for the podcast. So indeed, we saved it for the podcast where we can all uh, discuss it. Last last week, CNN did an interview with the head of the UN's World Food Programme and they published an article based on a comment saying that it would only take six billion US dollars to end world hunger, and it's time for these billionaires to step up. Elon Musk saw this and it sort of scratched his head, and he, he tweeted out, he said, if you can prove that six billion dollars will end world hunger, basically put your money where your mouth is, I will do it, I will sell Tesla stock, I will donate $6 billion to the World Food Program, and I will help end world hunger. The catch was that the accounting had to be fully open, fully audited, so he knows where every single dollar is going, just to know that they are doing what they say they're doing. Elon Musk also noted that the World Food Program actually raised $8.4 billion in 2020, so if it only took $6 billion to fix world hunger, how did they not do it with the $8.4 billion that they already raised? CNN has since corrected the article, and I think when you, you dive into the details, the $6 billion figure is a figure of how much you need to feed people that are in that are either in danger of becoming hungry or hungry right now. That's how much it would cost to feed them. But it would not fix any of the systemic programs of why they're hungry in the first place.
1: So I'm hungry right now. Does that mean they would send me a (laughs) mill?
0: Million dollars will buy a lot of Doritos, Brian. That's true.
2: I just... I just love the fact that Elon was trolling them, right? It's like CNN, credible news outlet, like, like they're all credible these days, right? Throws out a number and, and wasn't expecting any of these billionaires to respond and expecting them to stay quiet. And I got to give it to Elon for actually trolling them on this and saying, you know, like, really? Okay, great. Prove it. Right? Yeah, if That's you're going to awesome. try
1: to troll somebody, Elon's the wrong guy to do it, too. Like, uh, number one, I when hunt, if they actually put together something that said that this would actually end world hunger, 100% put my money on Homeboy actually selling his stock and committing to his word. I see yeah. him doing that. But I would tell him, hey, you need to round it up to like $6.5 billion, and there's a deech tax, so that other half a billion, <laughs> just you know, throw it my way. I'll figure out what to do with it. No big deal.
2: Uh, my- I'll manage it. I'll manage it for half a million. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> half a billion you'll be oversight (laughs) yeah half a billion you'll be oversight
1: there brian yes exactly it's a rounding error at this point when he's talking about a trillion and then my question would have like this is like if you're a shareholder and like you saying like i'm gonna sell off like six billion of this do you think that would have any impact on the stock would it go down
0: would it go up would it just kind of hang out and whatever yeah, so funny you should mention that. There, there's a parallel story here that that Elon Musk said. This completely independent of this story here, but but it's sort of in the same breath, uh, Elon Musk said, you know, there's there's all this anti-billionaire rhetoric going on right now. Pay your fair share. Billionaires don't pay their taxes. And Elon said, hey, you know, this is how taxes work in America. It's like I I don't have to pay tax until I sell my stock. So and then he put his money where his mouth is, and he he put a t- poll on Twitter. That says, yes or no, should I sell 10% of my stake in Tesla? And I will follow whatever the public decides. So I think there were about 4 million votes. It was about 55% yes, sell the stock. So he is going to sell 10% of his stock in the company. To in do the... what, though? What's he going to so do keep... with it? He'll, he has to pay tax on it. So he'll, he'll sell the stock, he'll hold on to the cash, and then he'll pay the capital gains tax on the 10% that he sells. So he owns seventeen percent of the company. Ten percent of his stock is one point seven percent of Tesla's shares outstanding. That's that's like a drop in the bucket, basically. I don't think it'll, uh, it shouldn't affect the stock price, but it will because it's Elon Musk doing some crazy stunt on on Twitter. But you go back to Brian's question: selling six billion of stock. I don't, in the grand scheme of things, that that should not affect the stock price long term because they're just they're betting on the future of the revenues of the company not necessarily you know how much stock is outstanding and
2: if it, even if it
0: dropped a little bit
2: it's a dip <laughs> I think yeah you're the stocks on R&D sale <laughs> yeah
0: if, if you're long the company anyway then then it's just, the stock goes on sale you just buy more
2: high five Brian right here yeah i got you <laughs> i
0: got you baby. <laughs> that's it yeah do you guys remember uh, I think it was, was it back in 93 when the U.N. went into Somalia and, and the U.S. sent you know, Army Rangers and Delta Force there to uh, stop all the civil war and stop the fighting there. And, and that was a problem. The U.N. got food to the ports of Somalia to end the, the famine there and the hunger there. And what happened? The warlords seized the food at the ports. They used it to feed their armies and the people still starved. So the problem of solving world hunger isn't that we're producing enough food or that we can't get the food to the right spots. It's these systemic problems that these countries are run by warlords and you have to rely on them to do the right thing and not steal the food from the port. So you can't just throw money at the problem. It, there are real systemic problems of why there's so many hungry people
2: around the world. Yeah, I mean, if you look at programs like UNICEF, save the Save the Apes, Save the Elephants, save animals in general i'm I'm all for that as long as someone's hand is not inside there grabbing a majority of the the donations that i'm trying to put in because like i said i'm all for donating but when you look at how much is taken out or the overhead costs in in your donation it's it's a ridiculous amount right i mean they're all they're everyone's got their hand inside they're taking a big majority chunk out right? Whether it be warlords or actually people themselves that are trying to manage it for an extraordinary amount of money.
1: Forget the warlords, man. Like I, my heart was broken at the tender age of like 19. Like I was giving a ton of cash to an organization, like to me at that point in time, like where most of my meals kind of hovered around the 59 cent uh, menu at Taco Bell, right? And I was giving a significant portion of my money uh, to this organization. And then one day is a big old hoopla. Like they're, they're coming into work and they're going to like give a presentation and get more people to donate. And I'm like right on. And I'm like I'm outside in the parking lot. And I'm like oh my gosh is that a Bentley? I've never seen a Bentley before. And then out walks this little, this little chick and this dude and they go inside. And then they're the ones presenting. I'm like they're in a Bentley? Like what am I doing here? Like that was the extent of my giving. That's when it stopped that day. Yeah. I totally
2: agree with you.
0: Yeah, uh, Charity Navigator. I think the website is Charity Navigator because if you're a you know registered charity with the the IRS, you have to be very transparent with how you spend your money. And there's a website I think called Charity Navigator that actually tells you what the efficiency of it. And so if you donate a dollar to, for, for me, I donate to the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, you can see how much goes to administrative costs, how much goes to marketing, how much does it go to the core mission of the program. So you can... Actually see how your money's being spent, so there's there's some level of transparency there. So if you're curious on you know how effective your money is for a particular charity, uh, go to Charity Navigator and you can find out. That that information's massaged
1: all day long. I've seen it before. I was an IT guy for something. I got to see exactly how this charitable money was being dispersed, and it was nonsense. Like ain't nobody that works in that's supposed to be giving back to the community needs to be bringing home a half a million dollars a year when you're supposedly doing that uh you know with your side hustle. That is just, that's complete BS. So maybe maybe they are good people, but I don't know. I'm skeptical of it.
0: That was that was what I always I was always curious about this. Maybe some one of our listeners can educate me uh because uh the difference between a credit union and a bank is a credit union is owned by the members um they're supposed to be a nonprofit and then a bank is for profit they charge you for for everything possible and that's why credit unions can give you better better rates. Uh, but at the same time, like, how do you compete? How do you be, compete as a CEO of a credit union versus a CEO of, say, Citibank? When they're getting in the private sector, you make hundreds of millions of dollars in bonuses, versus running a credit union. There's there's no way they get a compensation package that big.
2: Yeah. So so let's 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 kind of clear the air on this, right? For profit and not for profit, there's no difference because those positions still earn money. It's not like, let's say, X Credit Union in the United States is sitting there and is they're 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 sitting there to break even. They're still there trying to make money. They're just their guidance on how they get paid is a, is a little different. And you're right, the stock options may not be as high, right, as a Chase or a Wells Fargo CEO. But I guarantee you, if that credit union president is uh is doing well as far as managing the members' funds. He gets bonused as well, even though it's a not-for-profit.
1: Have you guys ever heard of uh, the Not Impossible Mission? Mick L. Being, I think is his name? Mm -mm. I have not. So this dude's wild, and I, I haven't actually gone in to see, like, you know how he spends his money, what he does, but he's got these stories where he's just like, Hey, I was visiting this country. The only way to get in there is to get snuck in. I forget if it was Uganda or something like that. Um, But some third world country uh, where they had like, have like warlords get them into the country so they can see what's going on. And they found out that uh, the government just like every once in a while when they're bored, just like they drop, like these drop these bombs. Like it's very similar to a very large scale grenade. And then the shrapnel goes out and just like dismembers people and things like that. Right. People lose appendages. And so when this happens, like everyone just kind of runs to a tree and hugs a tree and just prays that they don't get hit with it. And so when he was there, he saw a bunch of these kids and adults missing arms or legs. He's like, I got it. Like no matter how much money I raise, right? I can't give them all prosthetics. It's going to, that's, is this not going to work? So he had this idea. He's like, got his team together. He's like, how do we solve this problem? right? Like how do we actually do this? And so they came up with the idea of like 3d printers in trying to create prosthetics. And so once they actually got that working, then he had the task of actually getting the 3d printers into the country to actually print these machines. And then they also found out that, uh, you know, printing like in California versus printing out in the Congo or wherever it was, right? Like there was all kinds of problems. Like they, they left the light on in the room and like all the prosthetics just had bugs in it because like they were just flying around. So he had all of these challenges, but he goes out there and he's just basically is just like, whatever you say is, not, is impossible, he's like, I'm going to make it not impossible. So that's like kind of his goal in life. He's more of a motivational speaker, I believe now, but he's got some really cool stories like that. Um, but yeah, the prosthetic
0: one is probably the biggest one. I highly recommend it. Nice. Well, it's always always good to know. We, we talk a lot about bad news going on in the world. It's, it's always good to know that there's there's still good people out there. Well, we continue to get great comments about our dad joke of the week. Dad joke of the week. This week, I'm up. All right, I'm going to go back to our true dad joke roots here. What did baby corn say to mama corn? Where is popcorn? <laughs> ah. <laughs> wow. Nice. All right, to
2: wrap things
0: up. Go visit Costa Rica if you have the chance. Quadruple extortion is now a thing, and the Conti ransomware group is leading the charge. Surprising absolutely no one, the US federal government misses a critical deadline to enable multi-factor authentication. The NSO group and three other spyware makers get blacklisted here in the US, and CNN is still posting fake news. That's all we have for this week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find us all on LinkedIn, links will be in the description, follow us on Instagram at Podcast. You can help us grow the podcast by telling someone else about it, and thank you to all our listeners and subscribers who rated us 5 stars in the iTunes store and left us a review. We appreciate you all spreading the word to help grow the show. The best way to find us is to search for the Pepcac Podcast on your favorite podcast listening app. For my co-hosts Brian Deach and Glenn Medina, I'm Chris Louie, thanks for listening, we'll see you all next week, and as always have a nice day you guys can't see it but when
1: chris did his dad joke he looked so proud like he was this like a little boy that just got mom's blessing on something It was very, very very adorable chris we have to catch that thing next time
2: nice work chris thanks everyone thanks bye have a nice day